Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, welcome to Devils in the Dark with me, Helen Anderson, and me, Danny Howard. In every episode, we're going to be turning back the clock and looking at some of the worst murder cases in history. In this episode, we're looking into the infamous clown killer, it's John Wayne Gacy. How are you today, Danny? I'm not going to lie. I'm, I, since you just hear the words clown killer and you're just full of dread, I'm dreading this one. I don't, I'm already, I don't want to do, do it. Do not like clowns. Who likes clowns? Not many. Nobody. But are they like a genuine phobia? What an unpopular thing to be. Yeah. Um, I don't believe in clowns. I, I, I don't think I'm afraid necessarily of clowns, but I, I'm, I'm afraid of people's people in masks mm-hmm. i'm afraid of masks or like when i can't see a person's face and a clown is that basically so yes i yeah actually yeah that was just a long way of saying yes i think i am afraid of clowns i want to know at what point clowns weren't sinister because i don't see anything about a clown that isn't sinister literally never how do you feel about clowns i don't like them either there's just so, even but even if you haven't seen uh, any horror or anything related to clowns being bad, they are still bad. Have you ever had a good experience Never. with a clown? They're terrifying, even as a child. Like yeah. at, at a birthday party where they're making the balloon things. I no, thank you. Never went to those. Ugh, gross. So let's set the scene. Okay. Da, 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 da. It is December 11th, 1978. Des Plains, Illinois. Illinois. It's almost 9pm and 15-year-old Rob Peast is getting ready to end his shift at a pharmacy. When Rob's mother arrives to pick him up, he asks if she can wait and he tells her he wants to talk to a contractor about a construction job, so she agrees. He heads back into the car park and he meets the contractor, who then offers to drive Rob back to his home to fill out an application. So Rob goes with him. Rob Peast is never seen alive again. When her son doesn't return, Rob's mother panics and files a missing person report that evening. Mike Albrecht was one of the detectives investigating the teen's disappearance. And at that time in the late 70s, there was a lot of stuff going on with the hippie movement, all that kind of stuff. But he made a determination very quickly that this was not a normal, quote-unquote, runaway. He didn't have any girlfriend problems, was not involved in drugs or anything like that. He was just an all-American good kid. The last person seen with Rob at the pharmacy was John Wayne Gacy. So John was, he was a local businessman, socialite and politician. He's a friendly face in the community and he spends his weekends entertaining children as a clown named Pogo or Patches. <laughs> The nightmare names. <laughs> no, right. 
because John was the last person seen with Rob, the Chicago police take him into custody. And Detective Dave Hatchmeister is alarmed and stunned when he started digging, quite literally, into John's elusive past. We ran a records check on him, and as it turns out, he had a fairly lengthy um, background. He had spent uh, some time in uh, Iowa for sodomy, and uh, so it was sexual crimes, basically, against children. So on December 21st, police searched John's classic American suburban home at 8213 West Summerdale Avenue. When they executed that search warrant, they went in the crawl space, and the very first shovel that they dug, they found human remains. There, you're not going to believe this, they discover 27 bodies underneath his house. They were buried in the trenches under his house. It was essentially a mass grave down there. They keep looking and eventually find another three bodies. So in total, 30 bodies were found underneath his house. At one point, chillingly, he says to the detectives, you know, clowns can get away with murder. As far as murderers go, this is probably the worst one yet in terms of body count. Yeah, that's a hell of a body count just right there. And in such a short amount of time. Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. Just underneath his house, underneath his clown, all those bodies underneath his house. Let is let's just let's just keep going. Let's go back to the start. So John Wayne Gacy was born in 1942 in Chicago, Illinois. I love the word Illinois. It rolls off the tongue. Chicago, Illinois, Illinois. Into a working class family, and he was the second of three children. And he was the only son. However, like always, he was victim of a violent alcoholic upbringing. His father was abusive. He would mentally and physically abuse his wife and his children. And it's quite sad, really. So John's friend, Barry Buscelli, he actually remembers what John's abusive childhood was like. If Johnny was two minutes late, no food. So a lot of times Johnny ate at our house and stayed at our house overnight. He used to take Johnny when he was sitting at the kitchen table and he would take his fist and hit Johnny in the face. His, his dad would often would hit him, he'd abuse him, verbally assault him, um, often calling him stupid and effeminate. But despite the abuse, John still admired his father and sought his approval. So it just it seems like no matter what he did wasn't good enough, he'd get abused for it, he'd get shouted at, hit, but he's still, so he's just always trying to get the reaction that he wanted, which was obviously love and nurturing, which he never got. Crime author and journalist Jeffrey Wansall suspects that years of childhood abuse laid grounds for John's dark and violent future. The father is a very significant figure in the genesis of Gacy's terrible deeds. For, to my mind, Gacy was always trying to satisfy his father, whom he never could. He was beaten repeatedly by his father, with belts, with brooms. At one stage, he was knocked out by him. So Harold Schechter, who is a true crime writer who specialises in serial killers, has the inside track of a killer's mind. These people grow up with such a malignant view of 
the world and of human relationships and feeling that human relationships are not based on love and trust and respect, you know, that they're all based on exploitation and cruelty and inflicting pain. As a child, John was sick all the time. He was overweight and he was teased because of it. He was also diagnosed with a heart condition. And so it it, it was kind of hard for him to hang out with other kids. It it made the gap between him and other kids even bigger because he couldn't participate in sports or any other physical activity. So obviously as a kid, physical activity in sport is quite a big deal, especially in America because they're pretty recreational out there, aren't they? So, you know, being part of the community and making friends, you know, Mm. we made loads of friends at our gym, so... <laughs> yeah, and he didn't have that. No. So in 1960, age 18, John got really into politics and worked as a precinct captain for a neighbourhood Democratic candidate. Uh, so that's like the leader of the party of a local election sort of thing. As soon as he had a car, he left his abusive father, see you later, and got a job in Las Vegas in a mortuary. He spent many nights alone in the mortuary and would often sleep on a cot near the embalming room. Oh, that's not weird or creepy. Mm -hmm. Cool. (laughs) Of all the places that you could sleep in Vegas, why not? (laughs) Why a mortuary? (laughs) But saying that, of all the places you could sleep in a mortuary, yeah, probably one of the better ones. Mm. I thought you were going to say he slept in one of the fridges. One evening, he climbed into a coffin. Oh, okay. Here we go. And and he molested the corpse of a teenage boy. Oh, God. He immediately regretted it, calling his mother the next day to tell her he was coming home to Chicago. He didn't give a reason why. I I mean, I understand why. Mum, I molested a corpse. I'm coming home. At least he didn't like it. In 1963, it was time for a new job. John became a management trainee at a shoe company. He was soon promoted and transferred to Springfield in Illinois. He started dating a co-worker and they married in 1964. Criminologist Dr Elizabeth Yardley, she describes the life John had begun to build for himself. Well, Gacy got married and life from the outside appeared to be relatively normal. He had quite a good job. Um, His wife had two children. So they appeared to be the the, the typical cereal box American nuclear family. And Gacy wasn't just a a regular family man. He was also quite active in the, the local chamber of commerce and he played quite an active role. And he was a real figure in the local community. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. A couple of years later, John and his wife relocated to Iowa. 
another fun word, Waterloo in Iowa, where John managed three fast food chain restaurants owned by his father-in-law. And then he also joined the Waterloo JCs, which is a non-profit group that put on social and recreational activities for the local youth and quickly climbed the ranks. So it was looking good for him. Just only a year later, he was named outstanding vice president and served on their board of directors. He brought free fried chicken to meetings and insisted on being called Colonel by his colleagues. So everyone loved John because he, he brought them fried chicken. Oh, suck up. <laughs> I'm sorry, but if someone brought me fried chicken to meetings, I'd be like, oh, John, he's so great. Every time. I love fried chicken. Yeah, I mean, well, well Caribbean would take chicken everywhere, but like, <laughs> it stinks. I, I don't know. Uh, John bringing the chicken to the meeting, it doesn't matter if I'm a vegetarian. I would be like, I hope John's coming today. What are you trying to prove, John? Yeah, I'll come hungry, but still, shut up. Yeah, but what if it was vegetarian fried chicken? Uh, like corn nuggets. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, okay, you've got me. I, I love John. <laughs> John at every meeting. Um, get, yeah. get all fat and sassy. Yeah. <laughs> all right, yeah, okay, fair point proved. I just don't want to like John. I don't like John. So far, but you know, from now it sounds like he's doing quite well for himself. Well done, John. Everyone loves him. Mm. They love John, but they don't know that he has a dark secret, and that is he has unhealthy interest in young boys. That is dislikable mm-hmm. about a person. Yet, so John's first known assault was in August 1967, and it was a 15-year-old boy. So basically, John coerced him into his basement. Uh, with the promise of free porn and alcohol. What? Yeah. And then after getting the boy drunk, John forced him to perform oral sex. It's sad because, you know, when you're 15 and all you really want is like booze and fags and all all the things and the party party. I I mean, I think back to when I went to these random house parties when I was 15, Mm. 16, and talking to weird older men that you just kind of thought that that was all right because you were at this cool house party, but they could have been anyone. And so it probably wasn't difficult for John to to do that, to to coerce people into his basement because... Well, no, also, if he's already sort of like a pillar of the community, he's trusting. Exactly, and it was also 1967, so... Bad things hadn't been invented yet. Alcohol and porn was even more... Hard to, well, I don't know, like frowned upon or hard to get hold of, perhaps? I guess porn would have been in a magazine, wouldn't it? Yeah. I don't know how that makes a difference. It's just not as easily accessible. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, oh, that thing that's forbidden that I can't get hold of. This guy's got some. I want some of that. But obviously, didn't end up well for him. So he continued to act like this, this predatory behaviour, thinking he could act without any kind of consequences. So he just kept doing this kind of stuff over the next following months. Several other... Adolescents were abused at the hands of John. But in March 1968, the boy told his father about the incident with John and his father immediately went to the police. Harold Schetzer said John tried to retaliate. Uh, Gacy hired another teenager to intimidate this kid, to lure this kid into some remote place and spray mace in his eyes and beat him up and warn him against testifying in Gacy's case. John promised the teenager $300 if he followed through with his plan, but the boy testifying against John managed to escape the attempted assault and went straight to the police, and the other teen was arrested the following day and told the police everything. 
he pleaded guilty to one count of sodomy, thinking he would get uh, a very, very minimal sentence. Uh, but the judge threw the book at him, and he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. So it didn't really work in his favour. Good. So on the 3rd of 1968, he was sent to prison at Anamosa State Penitentiary. His wife filed for divorce. I don't blame her. A year later, John's father died of cirrhosis of the liver. The news struck John hard. And he did ask to go to the funeral, but he was denied. So this guy, he is a pillar of the community. He managed to work his way up the ranks in various, like, communal groups, clubs, etc. Like, buy people's love with fried chicken. And even in prison, he managed to manipulate people with his charisma and his charm. Given the perfect nature of Gacy's ability to groom whomever he came into contact with, within a matter of months, Gacy had become head cook at the prison, had convinced the staff that he was an absolutely ideal person. What's more, then convinced the parole board that he was no danger to anybody, and so served barely 18 months of the 10 years of his uh, original sentence. Right. He must have been a really good cook. There's a theme here, isn't it? Yeah. The fried chicken, and then he was a really, he's in a kitchen. What did he put in his... What yeah. he putting in this food? He's just feeding everyone MDMA so they love him <laughs> and do things and got all the paperwork done really quickly. How good looking does a man have to be for you to eat his fried chicken? <laughs> and that's not a euphemism. I'd eat anyone's fried chicken. Yeah, actually, I watched <laughs> you eat a stranger's hot dog once. <laughs> When did I do that? It was that download. I was busy having a wee and a man came over to have a look and he took a bite of his hot dog. <laughs> he, he was just holding it. He didn't offer it to you. <laughs> you were like a small dog. Just came up. <laughs> and I was busy going, why are you watching me have a wee? Because I was in the middle of a field having a wee. We digress. Okay, in June 1970, age only 28, John Wayne Gacy was released from prison after only serving 18 months of his 10-year sentence. He was put on probation for one year, unlike Untervega. If you haven't listened to our, our previous episode, then you should, just for context. And he went and lived with his mum in Chicago for a bit. And no one, none of his friends, his family, all neighbours had any idea about what he'd been up to or all the crimes he'd committed. His background was not looked into in any way, I think partly because he didn't go into any line of work in which any kind of background check would have been necessary. You know, he began his own business. With the help from his mum, he bought a house in Norwood Park Township on West Summerdale Avenue. And a couple of years after that, he married again to a divorcee who already had two kids. And so things were looking up for John. He's got the house, he's got the wife, he's in a nice neighbourhood. And then he starts his own construction business. He's doing painting, decorating and maintenance. And it was called PDM Contractors. And, you know, like before, he continued to have a friendly face in the community. And on weekends, he would dress up as a clown for children's parties and local hospitals. The fact that Gacy have this other persona as Pogo the Clown. Professional clowns 
usually, you know, will paint their smiles, you know, with sort of gentle, circular things around their lips. Gacy's smile looks like bat wings. There's just something horrifically sinister and monstrous um, about, about this figure of Pogo. Just an element that raises Gacy to the level of a kind of mythic American monster. I'm about to get up a picture of, of him as a clown. Oh my God. Oh, I would like to sleep tonight. That is not the kind of clown you want just turning up at your house. Oh, heck. He looks a bit like he should be in Kiss. Okay, yeah, so I'm going visually, to visually describe this. Yeah. So he's got blue, like, drag eyeshadow, like, think Panto Dame eyeshadow. Mm-hmm. Like, but then his mouth is done, oh, heck, kind of like... It looks like a bat. It does look like a bat, but like Batman bat. Yeah, like the... Like the Batman logo yeah, as a mouth. on his mouth. So it's very pointy. Mm-hmm. Um, and he appears to be smiling, but that kind of smile where you are, your face is pointed down slightly and he's looking up, which immediately makes you look insane and terrifying. And he's holding balloons, which is never comforting. No, two scary things in one go. Clown, balloon. And he's got a weird pointy hat and the big shoes. It's too much. He was a true socialite, John. They keep, this is a pattern. Socialites, don't trust them. He loved parties. I love parties, but... <laughs> I don't trust you. No, 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 no but I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is I love parties. I don't want to do this, especially at his house, especially at my house. Oh, God. Who hosts the parties? You do. I do. But occasionally, some of the house guests would comment on a strange smell. Now, I don't get that. People do ask me what my wall plugins are, but there's not any lingering odd smells unless Diane has weed on the carpet. His wife complained of it too, and he would just assure his wife and his guests that the smell was due to a moisture buildup. So he, he'd spread lime in the crawl space under the house where the smell appeared to be coming from to mask the stench. Sometimes he'd have one of his employees do it. So after a while, his wife had noticed him bringing teenage boys home. Oh. And on multiple occasions found gay porn that he'd hidden in the house. Right. Right, yeah, so a few red flags. And that's probably not that easy to come by no. in, when is this, the 70s? Yeah, 1976. Yeah, probably not that easy to come by, is it? No, and also probably not very accepting. No. In those days, I should imagine. I think she found that a bit... Uh, hard to deal with the fact that he was bisexual so shortly after they got a divorce on mutual grounds so this was a turning point for Gacy and a sinister grip took hold of him the um, painting and decorating business became bait for attracting young boys seeking employment as you can imagine you know you just finished school a lot of boys get jobs as as labourers or bricklayers or painter decorators so it is the perfect position to be in to lure in young boys so before long dozens of young boys started going missing dozens dozens right dozens on December 11th 1978 John met with the owner of a pharmacy in town of Des Plaines to discuss a potential remodelling job. John mentioned within earshot of employee Rob Peast that his company hired teenage boys at a starting wage of $5 an hour, 
which was double the amount Rob made at his job at the pharmacy. So probably purposefully doing that to seem appealing. So probably was planning on the outcome of this. So that night, Rob Peast went missing after working at the pharmacy and Detective Hatchmeister was on the case and said that it was unlike anything else he had dealt with at the time. Rob Peast was like a stellar kid. I mean, he was the kind of kid that anyone would want as a son. Never been in trouble, uh, never had any inclination to run away, he was a good student, very, very much out of character. They, he would turn up missing. So, um, you know, that caught our attention, obviously. As we mentioned earlier, the two detectives on the case eventually found the last person who'd seen Rob, and it was Jan. So they took him into custody, and he denied talking to Rob or having any involvement with his disappearance. But during questioning, the police out back were combing through John's records, and they found incriminating evidence, including an outstanding battery charge against him in Chicago. And... His time in prison for the sodomy with the 15-year-old boy, so they're like, oh, he's already been done for that kind of stuff. So as suspicions of John grew, detectives requested a search warrant for his house. So on December 13th, 1978, the police conducted their first search of his house, and like other people that had been to his house, they noticed a weird stench, but they couldn't pinpoint exactly where it was coming from. However, as they were looking for his home, they discovered a collection of very suspicious things. They recovered various items of pornography. They um, recovered some books that were titled uh, Pretty Boys Must Die. They also recovered driver's licenses of other young people. And they did a check on those driver's licenses. It uh, was determined that those kids were also reported missing. I would not keep them. Souvenirs, innit? Yeah, but like, if you if you're doing bad stuff, you don't want to hide the evidence in your house. You'd hide it better, but then I guess it's, like re- it's receipts, isn't well, I it? I guess I guess he's just plan not. He wasn't planning on getting caught. Was no, he? I guess not. Police also found a receipt for a roll of film that was being developed from the same pharmacy where Rob Peast had worked. So they're like, hang about. Detective Albrecht for what we're all thinking, this doesn't look good. Initially, we're hoping to find Rob Peace alive someplace. And it didn't take long to realize that probably was not going to happen. They also found clues regarding other missing people, one of which was a high school ring, which belonged to a 19-year-old John Sizzik, last seen in January 1977. Further investigation revealed that two of John's employees had also been reported missing, 17-year-old John Butkovich, last seen July 1975, and Gregory Godzik, also 17 years old, missing since December 96. And so these are all employees. Why have they only just realised that there's just this connection that they... Hang on a minute. So my son didn't come home from work. Neither did my son. Okay, well, maybe his workplace is eating him up. like Because he distracted them with chicken. Mm. It's the white suit all over again. So the search was solidified that their suspicions of John. His employees are just continuously going missing and there's one common denominator here and that is John being the employer. So making him the prime suspect. But the evidence wasn't substantial enough to make an arrest. There were no bodies, 
know nothing. So John was released under constant surveillance by detectives Dave and Mike. So they've had to follow him around everywhere that he went. You know, like when people are being spied on in movies and the car is always like behind them. You know, oh, yeah. you know, you know, yeah, like a window cleaning van. Yeah, and this, oh, what's he up to? They, basically, they just followed him around everywhere he went. And the thing was, is even though he knew he was being surveyed by them, because John was uh, another master manipulator, he tried to befriend them, and they even said at times that they found it difficult, and they had to put like, remember, hang on a minute, no, 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 this guy's not our friend. We're surveilling him because he he could be a potential murderer. So he even managed to almost sway these detectives that were which were surveying him. They were even going to a bar, and. Well, they'd be following around and like this waitress came over and plonked two beers down on the table and said that guy's paying for them. And he'd be like, yo, that's me. So he was really trying to kind of get them on his side. Well, a guilty person wouldn't send beers over, would he? No. John Wayne Gacy had a, a psychopathic personality, so he really does seek out power and he seeks out control and he likes playing with people. He's a, he's a bit of a puppet master and I think that was driving his behaviour. Everyone that we talked to just loved John Wayne Gacy. His neighbours, his co-workers, uh, all of his associates, they loved the guy. And we could see that. I mean, the way he was interacting with us was basically the same. And my partner and I, would have to, on many occasions, remind one another, hey, listen, you know, this guy is dangerous. But even though John was trying to get in their heads, detectives Dave and Mike entered the room again. They're like, nope, we know what we've got to do. And they continued their surveillance. Meanwhile, back at the station, disturbing new evidence began to surface as authorities questioned friends and colleagues of John. They're young kids, you know, 17, 18, 19 years old. And at times... Uh, he, Gacy had ordered these young kids to go down into his crawl space of his home and dig trenches, and he had told them that there was a sewage issue and that he needed the trenches dug so he could alleviate that situation. But they said that it happened several times and that there was an odor down there that was just unbelievable. So now we're starting to believe, hey, is it possible? And I know it sounds crazy, but is it possible he could have buried someone in the crawl space? So John was hiring young boys to literally dig graves. And it could have been their own graves. He gets other people unwittingly involved in his offending, and they don't know anything of what's going on. And I think that's what gets him gratification, the fact that, that he has such power over other people, that they're not joining the dots together, and that he's able to hide in plain sight. So at this point, as you can imagine, the police are convinced that he's hiding something. So Detectives Dave and Mike hatched a plan. Uh, we were on the surveillance for about seven days. And as the surveillance progressed, what we found out was that he had this huge core support of friends and family and co-workers and such, and that that is really what was the barrier between us and Gacy. So we developed a plan for the investigators to put some pressure on all of these people that were supporting him, and slowly they started peeling back from Gacy. So in December 1978, John left his home, and by this point, he's completely 
disheveled. He's just full of anxiety. Um, he's unshaven. He just looks like a total mess because he's just this pressure from this round-the-clock surveillance. Like, as you would be, every time you leave the house, someone's following you and watching you and bad-mouthing you and destroying his reputation amongst the community, constantly being harassed during this investigation. So he is kind of being chipped away at. He goes to his lawyer's office and he basically tries to file a civil lawsuit against the police department, claiming that they're harassing him and, like I said, destroying his Mm. reputation with their investigation. But he didn't know that that afternoon that the police had found more, more evidence and the photo receipt found in John's home was traced back to a co-worker of Rob's at the pharmacy. So the police contacted the girl who told them that she had placed the receipt in Rob's jacket pocket right before he left the store to meet with the contractor. So because obviously he's like, he's not okay, his behaviour started to, to become even more erratic. We follow Gacy and uh, Gacy is driving like a madman and he drives to the Shell gas station where he did all of his business. He goes in and we see a transaction happen in the gas station. It was very emotional, shaking his hand, almost on his side, hugging that kind of thing, and this is so out of context for Gacy. So when Gacy comes back out, jumps in his car and takes off, I go back in the gas station, and when I go in there, they throw a couple of bags of marijuana at me the employees, and they say, hey, listen, we didn't buy this, we didn't ask for it, Gacy just gave it to us. So he's clearly not thinking straight because he's trying to get rid of this weed, throws it at these teenagers, so, but the police now have a reason to arrest him, which is because he's, you know... Was he previously using it to lure the people, lure the boys back? Do you think? Maybe. Yeah, that's probably why he had it. Hey, I've got drugs and, and nudie mags. Yeah. Come to my house. I got more of that at mine. Yep. You like to party? We make a decision at that point to arrest him for the drug transaction that happened at the Shell gas station. So we cut off the car, pull Gacy out of the car, and arrest him for that drug transaction. So whilst in custody, detectives told John that they had just got a second search warrant. Ah, ah. John suddenly goes pale. The colour literally just falls out of his bum. Of his face, because he's like, no, they're going to find them. They're going to find it. And he started to experience chest pains, probably quite literally having yeah. a heart attack. Like, oh, God, oh, he's God, panicking. I'm panicking. So he's taken to a nearby hospital. But in the meantime, the police returned to John's house with the intention to find Rob Peace's body. But what they actually find was far worse than they could have imagined. So they immediately called me, let me know that um, there was human remains in a crawl space, and at that time I arrested uh, John Gacy for murder. Gacy says he wants to confess, but really he wants to confess to the surveillance team, both myself and my partner and the other team. And now all of a sudden he's got an audience again, and he's on top of the world, and he knows he can't get out of it at this point, and so he might as well just divulge everything that actually happened. He knows that he can't get away with this because the evidence is right there under his house. So it probably just a switch goes off in his brain where he's like, fuck it, I'm just going to tell them everything because there's no going back. You might as well. 
Mm. So this confession lasted several hours. Probably had a lot to tell them. Ugh, a 33 murders. It's a lot to get through, isn't it? Um, yeah, okay. And he also, he draws them a map to show them where all the bodies are underneath his house. I gave him a pen and he started right up. He squared it off in the thing and he started, well, this was a double and this was a triple and this was the first guy with a, put an X on it. Went around the whole crawl space with these places where the body was buried. I mean, they were digging with spoons and everything, but they obviously identified where all the bodies were and they did an overlay of where the bodies were actually found compared to that diagram that he made. And it was unbelievable. It was right on the money. And by double and triple, it means double, triple murders. So these happened at the same time. So he was murdering two people at once with with the other person that hadn't been murdered yet watching. Ugh. Right, okay. So in total, 27 bodies were recovered from underneath his house. Can you imagine being in this neighbourhood? That's mad. Imagine living next door. It is the last place you would think to look. Mm -hmm. Because it's not an easy space to manoeuvre in, let alone bury that sheer number of people. But you you can take your time with it, isn't it? Do what you want. And that's probably why he's sending small, you know, young boys, younger people to go down and do the digging, probably because they're smaller and can fit in the space easier. He's sizing them up. And they probably, they, I mean, they probably don't even know how sewage works. Like, if you yeah. if you ask, like, a plumber, can you dig a trench in my under my house for the sewage? They'd be like, you fucking joking? Like, yeah. That's not where it goes. <laughs> no. Pipes are there. <laughs> But a 15-year-old boy is not going to question that, is he? No. It's mad. It's mad. It's mad. That that sheer amount. Because especially, they were only looking for one kid. One boy, and they found a so lot of boys. Been, they just keep coming. When's it going to stop? We don't know how. We haven't been told how he's killed them yet. No, but we are about to find we, out. Oh, good. You're going to hate this, but this next detail is really gross. When we booked him for murder, we asked Gacy uh, where where he was born. And Gacy looked at us and said, I was born in a state of confusion. And he smiled like that and we captured the photo. Not funny. Nobody thinks you're cool, mate. Shut up. You can't be that confused because you killed 33 people. That photo was his mugshot. So if you Google it, you'll be able to see, as he was saying, "Um, state of confusion, they took his mugshot at that moment. And it's just sinister. Fucked up. He had confessed to the murder of 33 young men and boys between 1972 and 1978. So six years, 33 people. That's a lot, isn't it? Yeah. Over six years. I can't do the maths. Most of John's victims' bodies were found under his house in the crawl space. But in April 1979, the body of Rob, our dear Rob from the pharmacy, his body was found floating in a river. So they they wouldn't have found... They went there to look for Rob, but Rob went there. They found a load of other people instead. But they did find him eventually, just not where they thought it would be. And he later confessed to his murder. He was very descriptive on what he had done with Rob Peast. Rob Peast's mom was waiting for him in the front parking lot, and Rob said to his mom, hey, I'm going to talk to a contractor about a job. I'll be right back. He goes back in the pharmacy. Gacy is in the 
back parking lot, the alleyway. And as Gacy's leaving, Rob follows him outside and says, excuse me, sir, I understand that you hire young kids and uh, I'm really interested in having an, uh, a different job. And Gacy says, well, jump in the car, I'll have you fill out an application. So Gacy actually drives Peast willingly to Gacy's house. While there, Gacy starts showing Peast some, uh, some little tricks of the trade of being a clown. He shows him a couple of card tricks. And the last trick that he shows Peast is the handcuff trick. Gacy actually handcuffs himself and turns around and struggles with the handcuffs and then turns back and he holds the handcuffs up. And Peast is pretty amazed at that. And he said, well, that's, that's neat, how'd you do that? So Gacy says, well, here, you handcuff yourself and I'll show you how to do that. So Peast handcuffs himself and he struggles and he struggles and he struggles. And he looks at Gacy and he says, now, what's the trick to this? And Gacy reaches in his pocket and pulls out a key to the handcuffs. And he says, the trick is, you got to have this key. Fucked up, in it? Look at this clown trick I can do. And then it has a very horrible twist. You can see it, like you can see the movie, can't you? Yeah. Just playing out, being like, well, quit playing around, let me go. As part of his confession, he confessed that he used chloroform to render his victims unconscious. And then afterwards, he used methods of torture. He did what he called the rope trick. And when he had these young kids incapacitated like that, he would slip a rope over their neck, a knotted rope like a loop, and then put the stick in the back like a tourniquet, and he would slowly turn the tourniquet. And he said he had it perfected so well that he knew exactly how the body would react to each half turn. And he went into detail on how he would torture these young men. And he seemed to be pretty proud of that. But we used that to our advantage to keep him talking. And he described every killing um, to a T, exactly how it happened, all 33. Like, he remembers every single murder. And that the fact that it is so clear in his mind every time is so sad. He knows what he did, and he obviously isn't sorry or trying to, like, forget or justify or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's brutal. As the news spread across the country, one viewer realised he had unknowingly participated in John's handcuff trick, and it was a former employee. So he was, like, one of the guys that got away, essentially. Um, His name was Tony Antonucci love that name and so he worked for him for the painting and decorating business and Tony had accidentally got a nail stuck in his foot this is this is what happened John took me and I got a tetanus shot and uh, and took me home and he came over later that evening to check on if I was okay or that was the the theory but he also had you know, some wine, and we were drinking, and he was kind of joking around. It was probably 10, 10.30 at night. I was a high school wrestler, and he said, oh, you know, you know you're a big wrestler guy, and he started wrestling around with me. He got uh, my left arm, and he got it behind me, and I felt him put a handcuff on it. I kept flailing my right hand around so that he, he couldn't get my right arm, but eventually 
he did get a hold of my right arm, and he knocked me down to the floor with my hands behind me. He left the room for a few minutes, and I realized that if I pulled really hard on my right hand, that I could pull my hand through the handcuff. I could get it out. I took the handcuff that I had gotten out of, and I handcuffed him on one of his wrists, and I reached into his pocket, got the key, and I handcuffed him behind his back, laying face down. He goes, you're the only one that not only got out of the handcuffs, you got them on me. And I didn't know what that meant. I thought that this was some type of test that he had performed before. And I let him stay handcuffed for 10 or 15 minutes before I let him out of the handcuffs. And, you know, he had previously agreed that when I let him up, he would leave. And he did. That is shocking. Tony still continued to work for him, though, for a few months. I would have handed my notice in like on the Monday. Not even handed notice in. <laughs> I just not turned up for work. I don't work here anymore. He didn't report the incident until after John's arrest, which I guess is quite fair enough because you think, oh, that weird thing happened to me. I don't want to talk about it. But then mm. when you hear about all the other stuff, you're like, yeah, I probably should tell them about that because it's quite important. So the trial began in February the 6th, 1980. And at this time in Illinois, they still had the death penalty. Okay. Mm-hmm. His defence team were pleading for insanity and forensic psychologist Helen Morrison remembers. It was an interesting trial. And what was so fascinating about it was they had so many different psychiatrists saying so many different things that they all came up with different diagnoses which really goes towards this picture of this non-intact human being, this bits and pieces of person. The trial lasted five weeks, and though the defence was pleading insanity, the prosecution team was determined to prove that John was fully responsible for his horrific actions. Here's Liz. There's a difference between psychopathy and mental illness. Psychopaths are rational. They know what they're doing and they know what they do is wrong, but they decide to do it anyway. So he was fully culpable for his crimes. He was vicious. He was evil. He was not insane in any way. He knew exactly what he was doing. And he killed these people for self-preservation because he was so well-liked politically and business-wise, he couldn't have his public out that he was taking advantage of these kids. One of the prosecution witnesses was Tony. I saw him in court, and he was off to my left, uh, sitting at the uh, at the table where the defense attorneys are. And he just stared straight forward. He was fairly far away. I I might have caught his eye on occasion in the courtroom, but um, I was pretty nervous to be on a, a witness on a trial of that significance. At, even at that age, in my early 20s. So on March 13, 1980, the jury had made their decision about the fate of John. It didn't take long for them to find him guilty. I think it took maybe less than three hours, which was amazing. And then he was found guilty. It was kind of amazing how fast everything went. Um, when you look at other trials that have gone on, this trial went extremely fast. In the final moments of the trial, one of the prosecutors, William Kunkel, called him a ruthless, sadistic killing machine. And I think that's a pretty apt description. 
I'm not surprised it didn't take them that long. Like, the evidence supporting this, the fact that he lives on a grave made dug by his own employees, which are probably laying in there right now. Yeah. Like... (laughs) And if it... Yeah, there's no... It's like... The cookie jar is empty, Helen. Where have all the cookies gone whilst, you know, my mouth is covered in chocolate? Yeah. And how many times has that happened? Ne- uh, never. <laughs> <laughs> so he was sentenced to death and um, he was taken to the Menard Correctional Centre in Illinois where he would remain on death row for 14 years. And so on May 10th, 1994... John was executed by lethal injection at Stateville Penitentiary in Illinois. He did not give a shit up until his final moments. Do you know what his last words were? What? Kiss my ass. Dickhead! Yeah! That's so annoying! What dick? (laughs) What dick? Yeah. I'd have been like, right, well, sorry, I'm cancelling it. I'm cancelling it. You don't get to die today because you obviously, you're happy about it. Get back in your cell and I'm going to make you throw up your last meal because you don't get that either. You don't get to digest whatever it is. Get back in there. Dickhead. I actually think that might be what the worst one so far. I still think Ed Gein's up there, though. Ed Gein is up. I mean, they're all up there. Mm. Um, but this one, it's just the level of just all of it. It's a lot. It's a lot. That's one that, um, it, like, it gets me in my chest. I feel like it's bad because he got away with it for so long. Because if if you look at the timeline, these are all people that went missing, like, at re- various different intervals at, and, like, time points. And then they've only just been being... Over six years, these people have been missing for... All this time, and they were they were there all yeah. along. It's shocking, yeah. Because I mean, like you say, Ed Gein, Ed Gein was really bad, but his body count was low. Yeah, was it? It was well because they were 11. all already dead. Yeah, they were. Yeah, he only actually killed two people, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Oh, like that's better. This is, <laughs> and now this is this is like what killer bingo. Next time on Devils in the Dark, with me, Helen Anderson, and me, Danny Howard, we're diving into the world of another killer woman, the femme fatale that tricked the nation, Tracy Andrews. Make sure to subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of Devils in the Dark, and we would love it if you could leave us a review. Love to hear from you. We do, we do, we do. We do! Special thanks to Woodcut Media and our wonderful producers at Audio Boom Studios.